Do you remember walking down the cereal aisle as a kid? Like just by the smile on your faces, I know that you did. I had my favorites. Cinnamon Toast Crunch, Pops, Fruity Pebbles. And the morning after grocery shopping day, my sisters and I would fight over the box. And you know why. We were fighting for the prize inside, right? And whoever came out of that royal rumble would stick their dirty hands into the box, flinging cereal everywhere to pull out the cheaply made insignificant toy. But for us, it was so important. I mean, even today, when I go food shopping, walking down the cereal aisle is a trip down memory lane. Even right now, you're probably thinking of your favorite bowl of cereal. But did you know that since the late 90s, cereal sales have been on the decline? In fact, in 2015, Mintel, which is one of the world's leading market intelligence agencies, did a study to see why cereal sales were on the decline. There were a variety of causes, as you can be sure, but one of them stood out to me. It said this, 40% of the millennials surveyed in the study said that cereal was an inconvenient breakfast choice because they had to clean up after eating it. We're talking a bowl and a spoon. Now, before we go on a rant about millennials, let's remember that all of us seek to find ways to live the unbothered life. The quest for convenience led to the invention of dishwashers and laundry machines, microwaves and crockpots, all time-saving and labor-saving appliances that create in us this expectation to reject burden and embrace ease. Now, fast forward to today with the days of home automation. With Alexa and a smartphone, you can grocery shop, reorder home goods, control your Instapot, thermostat, and lights, and never get off the couch. It's amazing. And with every automation, we buy into this unbothered liturgy that exertion is to be avoided at all costs. And when the convenience and ease, when that becomes normative, even expected as a rule for life, it does have unintended consequences on our relationships with others and the effort we're willing to exert to create and live a life of meaning and purpose. Jen, Michael, uh, Jen Pollock uh, Michelle offers an antidote from her own life. It's a lengthy quote, but it's so good. She says this, I'm increasingly conscious of the bother of physicality, increasingly conscious that there's no way to love others without it. My children have an unrelenting need for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and I am many days irritated that I should have to feed them something other than ramen. And at the end of a long day, my husband interrupts my well-laid plans for reading in bed with his puppy eyes of desire. Truth be told, Marriage can find me tired and wishing to be left alone. Now my aging mother is growing forgetful, repeating tired stories over the phone when I'm under a deadline. She'll expect we come again at Christmas. And more recently, a member of the extended family has chosen to die. And attending the funeral, all seven of us, will cost us significantly in time and money. Secretly, I wish for a substitute to serve as our presence among the grieving. In theory, I want to love, but in reality, I want it to tax me less. Now, she is just 
courageously saying out loud what we're too often ashamed to say. See, most of the time, I wish I could just send in a substitute in my place so that I wouldn't have to be bothered. And that begs the question, who do we become when evasion from obligations to love sound more like freedom than leaning into opportunities for love and meaningful connection? Today, we start on the longest section of the Apostles' Creed. And this morning, we're going to spend our time looking at the name that the Bible says is above every name. And that name is Jesus Christ. And his name is above every name because he is the God who became flesh. The God who bothered to enter into the physicality and the fray of human life. And our desire for a substitute, Jesus fulfills that desire, and he does so no matter the cost. In fact, at great cost to his life. Today, we're going to look at the person of Jesus and see who he is and what he's like. And then we're going to look at the purpose of Jesus and ask, why did he come? And then we'll close at looking at how faith in Jesus rearranges the priorities in our life so that we become a people who embrace the burden to love. So we're going to look at the person of Jesus, we're going to look at the purpose of Jesus, and then we'll close by looking at the priorities of Jesus. Let's start with his person. John 1, as we heard read, tells us some profound things about Jesus. He's going to tell us that Jesus is both fully God and fully man. Look with me at verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now, John opens up his gospel by invoking the first words of Genesis 1-1, in the beginning. We looked at that last week, right? In the beginning. It's meant for us to go back to the origin story. And as he does, John introduces us to the word. Who is this word? Now, at first, we don't know. John is intentionally vague here. But if you were a Greek speaker, if you were one of the original people reading this, your ears would have just perked up because the word that we, hear, that we translate word is the Greek word logos. It's where we get our word logic or reason. In the philosophies of the day, the logos referred to the ultimate meaning, the reason for being. There are all kinds of philosophies written about the logos. What is the logos? Why are we here? What is the ultimate meaning? What is the reason for our existence? And philosophers have been discussing it ever since. See, they knew that knowing the answer to the why, knowing the answer to that question seasons every decision in our life. And we do this intuitively. Let me give you a silly example. When we want to know the, pur- we want to know the purpose of something because it gives us insight in how we're supposed to use it. So for example, Using a toaster as a TV remote doesn't work so well, does it? Right? A toaster is meant to toast things. And a TV remote allows you to control the TV. See, just that simple example tells you if you know the purpose of something, it gives you direction to how it's supposed to be used, what it's for, the reason it's there. So John introduces us to the Logos. He says, in the beginning was the word, the Logos. And then he does something no one would see coming. 
John uses the personal pronoun he to refer to the word. Now, at first you might think that, that that's not so important, but it should be it. It was with God in the beginning, but he doesn't. It says he was with God. John says he, which gives this word personality, doesn't it? Whoever this word is, he was with God in the beginning. He was with God the Father in the beginning, and he is God. We're starting to get this picture that the word is not some abstract principle, not some philosophy, but a person. The personal pronoun he means the word is a person. But who? Who could this word be? Verse 3. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now the word is described with divine attributes. Did you see that? This word is eternal, which means there was never a time when the word did not exist. He has always existed. Before there was anything, the word was there. And this word also has the power to create. The omnipotence and the omniscience, everything that, that you need to be able to create, the word has. We start to see these divine attributes applied to the word. He's an active agent in the work of creation. God the Father spoke creation into existence, and it was the word that actively brought it together. It's like they're in this partnership, in this union, working together. All things were made through the word. So this word has eternality and omnipotence and omniscience, all that's required in the work of creation. And then we find that this word has life to give, which is another divine attribute, isn't it? Just like the God the Father has life to give, so does the word. And John also says that the word gives light, shining light into the darkness so that we who walk in darkness can see the great light and come to him no longer walking in darkness. John keeps going in verse 9. He says, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Now, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But verse 12, all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Now, at this point, John has not told us who the word is, but he's starting to give us some clues before his big reveal. John says the word was the true light, and he was coming into the world that he made. But the people in the world didn't know him. They didn't receive him. They didn't love him. But John says anyone who received this word, that they gave, that who had believed in him, that they could become children of God. Adopted into his family, not, not through birthright, which was, you know, uh, uh, how you uh, uh, came into royalty, how you came into a good family was through birthright, which has nothing to do with you. He says, no, it's not that. It's not human ingenuity either. It's not something that you can just figure out, and it's not through human effort. You can't will it to happen on your own. It's because God the Father looks on you, has pity on you, has mercy on you, and adopts you. Reborn and adopted by God the Father, the giver of life. Now John goes for his big reveal in verse 14 and 18. Look at this. 
And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, that's referring to the Father. The only God, now he switches to talk about Jesus. How do we know that? Because he is who is at the Father's side has made him known. In this passage, John unapologetically reveals that this word is not an abstract principle, but he is none other than the glorious son of God, full of grace and truth, Jesus Christ. Now, if you remember what I said about what the word logos means, ultimate reason, he has just dropped a philosophy truth bomb and said, Jesus Christ is the ultimate meaning. He is the ultimate purpose. He is for whom all of this finds meaning. He is the purpose you've been looking for. He's the one who can make sense of your life and give it the meaning you're looking for. Those who receive him, who receive this Logos, who receive Jesus, receive grace upon grace from him. Because just like God the Father, God the Son is divine. He has a fullness and a richness and a never-ending stream of grace and truth from which he can give to you. He's not lacking in anything. Earlier, we saw that the word was God. Now we see that the word added something to his person. Did you see that? And the word became flesh. This eternal word, the son of God, became flesh. He added a human nature. That's what John means by the word became flesh. It doesn't mean that, that he wrapped on a human skin like a coat. That's not what he's talking about. He's saying he actually became a man. Now, I know at first, your minds are like, right? That's a lot to take in. It sounds confusing. And it is a hard concept to wrap your mind around. But just because it's hard doesn't mean we shrug our shoulders and go, well, got to give up there. No, it means we lean in, we keep reading, we keep listening. We, we press in until the fog lifts. Jen Wilkins says, the heart cannot love what the mind does not know. So if we're going to love Jesus, we have to know who he is. And this is who he is. G Christianity teaches that Jesus is fully God and fully man. Now, here's what that means. Remember, a couple weeks ago, we unpacked the Holy Trinity, and we defined it like this. We borrowed our definition from the New City Catechism. There are three persons in the one true and living God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are the same in substance, which means that they all share in the divine nature, and they're equal in power and glory. God is one being with three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and they're equal in power and glory, they're unified in their purposes and mission, and they're diverse in their roles and responsibilities. This second person of the Trinity, the Son, he has always existed. He was with God the Father in the beginning. That was John's point. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And at a particular point in history, the Word took on flesh in the person of Jesus where God is one, per, one uh, being with three persons, Jesus is one person with two 
natures. That's like the, the, uh, the orthodox math right there, okay? This is often referred to as the incarnation. Here's what that means. The second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, who has eternally existed in relationship to God the Father, becomes incarnate. He takes on flesh. Now, this is not something God the Father does. This is not something God the Spirit does. This is unique to God the Son. To his already divine nature, he adds a second nature, a human nature. And in doing so, he doesn't give up his divine nature. He isn't losing anything. He doesn't surrender his lordship or his divinity, right? He doesn't lose anything. He's adding a second nature, a human nature. Again, not a divine nature wrapped in flesh, but actually takes on a human nature with all of the human attributes that come along with that nature. So let me say it this way. Everything that is true about humanity is true for Jesus except for sin. So he gets hungry, just like you and I get hungry. If I go too long in my sermon, I will hear your stomachs rumbling. You will get hungry. Jesus did the same thing. He got tired. He had to learn things, right? He didn't come, but wasn't born in the world knowing how to walk and do all the things that we are all going to learn to do. He had to learn those things as a human. He was tempted, just like you and I are tempted, except as he faced temptation, he never gave in. He is without sin. It's the only thing that is different between Jesus's humanity and yours. Think about it. Jesus experienced a human life just like you and I do. Jesus knows what it's like to be human, not because he intellectually knows it as one who is omniscient, but he knows what it's like to be human because he actually experienced it. He has a human nature just like you and me, except for sin. Now, don't forget, he also has this divine nature. He is fully God with all of the attributes that come with his divine nature. So God the Son still maintains his eternality, his omniscience, omnipresence, omnipotence, omnibenevolence. He is holy, all of it. He is fully God. Now, here's what you need to know. The divine nature and human nature do not fuse together to create some alloy. He's not a third thing. They're not blended together. They don't mix together. They're two distinct natures in the one person of Jesus Christ. The person of Jesus has access to both, but the natures don't get blended and confused together. The divine nature doesn't share those attributes with the human nature, and the human nature doesn't share those attributes with the divine nature. They don't cross-pollinate, okay? They remain separate, but the person of Jesus has access to both. Now remember, when I'm talking about natures, natures don't act. Natures are a a pool of attributes from which a person can act, right? When you do things, you have a human nature which has attributes. There are things that you can do, and it's your person who accesses those things and acts, okay? People do things, and they do things according to their nature. And so Jesus is this God-man. He's fully God, fully man, and he has access to both natures. Now, if you're tracking with that, you might be thinking, how did he keep it all straight? I mean, imagine the experience of a person with two natures, divine and human. He's infinite and finite at the same time. He's eternal and temporal. He's omnipotent and he suffers. He's omniscient, but he's also limited in knowledge. How did Jesus live with these two natures? One of my favorite theologians, John Frame, answers this question really well for us. He says this, the general pattern, I think, I love that, 
right? That's a humble theologian. The general pattern, I think, is that while on earth in his state of humiliation, that's him being made human, that Jesus often limited his specifically divine attributes. For as we have seen, the specific purpose of the incarnation was that God should live our life and feel our sufferings in order to be a perfect substitutionary sacrifice for our sins. See, it's clear when you read the gospels that Jesus experiences a human life. And Paul talks about this in the book of Philippians. He says that one of the reasons Jesus' name is the name above all names because he emptied himself of his divine prerogative. He intentionally set it aside. He intentionally didn't access his divine nature. So when he was hungry, he didn't go, let me just fix that real quick, right? Like, let me just zap over some divine nature, fill my belly, and I'll be fine. No, he, he experienced humanity and said, I have to eat just like everybody else. Sure, he often performed miracles and performed healings, but the pattern of Jesus' life was not to come with a display of power, but a display of weakness. The fact that he allowed his own creation to crucify him on a cross proves that point. Now, I know that's a lot to take in, but if you can keep that framework You're doing well, and you can start to go into this deep work of knowing God. Next week's sermon is all about proving and showing and highlighting the divinity of Christ. But this week, I want us to focus on his human nature. So when we say the Son of God became man, we really do mean that. We don't mean he appeared to be human or just seemed to be human. We really do mean he was human. 1 John 4.2 says it this way. By this, you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. John's epistle makes it really clear. The son of God, Jesus Christ, came and took on flesh to be a true human. He lived in a body that was made from the dust. The one who created the world became part of his creation. Mark Jones in his book, Knowing Christ, says this. The evidence for Christ's true humanity is as conclusive as the evidence for his full divinity. He's born of a woman, Galatians 4.4. Jesus was called the son of Mary, Luke 2.7. He was a descendant of David according to the flesh, Acts 2.30 and Romans 1.3. He experienced physical reactions such as hunger, thirst, and fatigue. He wept, he wailed, he sighed, and he groaned. Friends, Jesus was a real historical person born at a particular place at a particular time. Though his conception was a miracle, and we'll look more at that in two weeks, his birth was a normal human birth, just like ours. He began his days just like you and I did. And he grew up in the village of Nazareth in Galilee. Check this out. He had parents he had to obey. He had to go through the painful process of growing up. As a person, he knew what it was like to have sleepless nights and the pain of hunger. He needed water to quench his thirst. He sweat when it was hot and he shivered when it was cold. He studied the family business and for most of his life worked as a Jewish tradesman. And then at the age of around 30, he began his ministry as a traveling rural rabbi. His compassion for people led him to care for them and weep for them. He was called a friend of sinners, and he loved the unlovable. He touched the untouchable. Jesus was a man of integrity. He called sin, sin. He had a moral backbone. He couldn't be bought or bribed. He stood for what was good, true, and beautiful. 
He helped people understand the heart of God's law, and he himself kept it perfectly. He was a proponent of inclusive, uh, inclusivity and diversity before it was cool to be a proponent of inclusivity and diversity. He invited anyone to follow him, regardless of their background, ethnicity, race, or pedigree. He laughed with children. He spoke to them with dignity. He got down on their level. In a culture where women had zero voice, not just a little bit of voice, I mean zero voice, he gave them dignity to be his followers, to be his friends. He even gave them the joy of being the first to witness his resurrection. Jesus confused the religious. He confounded the liberal. He defined what servant leadership was all about. He came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. He came to seek and save the lost because he knows that it's the sick who need a doctor. He enjoyed meals with friends, and he cried when death took them. He was reviled by many, but he never spoke a word of malice in return. He was betrayed by one of his closest friends, and he was abandoned by his best friends. He was wrongly and falsely accused of crimes and hung on a cross at the insistence of a vengeful mob. He was ordered to be crucified by an indifferent indifferent Roman governor and at the same time, according to the sovereign purposes of God. And marvelously, miraculously, after three days, his body was gloriously restored and raised just like he said it would be. For these reasons and many more than I don't have, that I have time to share, that's why Jesus is the name above all names. That's who Jesus is. He is the God-man. So what was his purpose? Why did he come? Well, the very name, Jesus Christ, speaks to his purpose. Jesus is, the Greek, is Greek for the Hebrew name Yeshua or Joshua, which literally means God saves. Like that says something about his purpose. Now, Christ, which is not his last name, it's actually a title. It means Messiah. It's just the the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah. It means the anointed one. It means he was set apart uniquely and specifically for his role as the long-awaited deliverer who would come to bring about the redemption and salvation of the world. By, By his name and title, Jesus Christ, it tells us what his purpose was. And his purpose is directly connected to who he is, right? Being fully God and fully man enabled him to fulfill his purpose as the mediator between God and man. That's why he came as a mediator. So what's a mediator? It's a go-between, right? It's the one who helps resolve a conflict between two parties. When I think about a mediator, I think about an oven mitt, right? Like I can't just reach my hand in and grab the 400 degree Pyrex, right? I need a mediator. I need a go-between, right? Something that can withstand the heat and pull out whatever deliciousness I've made that day, right? It's a go-between. Now, what is this conflict between God and man? Why do we need a mediator? In a word, it's this, sin. Now, sin is one of those religious theological words that is losing um, uh, ability to define in our culture. So let me help redefine it. What is sin? In the Bible, sin is a catch-all word for any attitude or action, whether trivial or paramount, unintentional or intentional, whether by commission, mean things you do, or omission, things you don't do, that is offensive to a holy God. Sin pollutes and contaminates everything 
around us. Sin breaks God's law and tramples human flourishing. Sin takes what is good and perverts it for selfish, manipulative purposes. Dan Doriani says it like this, sin opposes God's law and his created beings. Sin hates rather than loves. It doubts or contradicts rather than trusts and affirms. And it harms and abuses rather than helps and respects. Cornelius Plantinga, you know that guy was born to be a theologian. That name, I love it. Sin is any act or disposition, any thought, desire, emotion, word, or deed, or its particular absence that displeases God and deserves blame. John Piper says it this way, sin is any feeling or thought or action that comes from a heart that does not treasure God above everything else and everyone else. That's why we often confess in our time together, most merciful God, we confess that we've sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we've done and by what we've left undone. We've not loved you with our whole heart and we've not loved our neighbor as ourselves. For all of those reasons, sin creates a conflict that's too great for us to solve on our own. We're slaves to sin, and therefore we need someone to purchase our freedom. We're guilty, and we need forgiveness. We're polluted, and we need cleansing. We are rebels, and we need pardon. We're separated from God, and we need to be restored. And the Bible teaches what we intuitively know to be true, that the wages of our sin is death. What we earn for our sin, for our participation in it, is death. And the solution will not come without great cost. But thanks be to God that Jesus was super clear on his purpose. He said it like this in Luke 19, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. And again in Mark 10, 45, for the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And because we couldn't uh, purchase our pardon or plead our case, because we ourselves cannot bridge the gap between ourselves and God, he sent a mediator. He sent God the son. First Timothy chapter two, verses five through six says this, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man. The man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Our mediator in Jesus Christ bridges the gap between infinite God and finite man. He gave his life as a ransom to be the payment price to purchase our freedom. Galatians 4 verses 4 and 5 says this, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons and daughters. Paul says that when the time was right, God the Father sent God the Son to be born of a woman, born under the constraints of the law to redeem us who are under the law. What that means is Jesus experienced life just like you and I experienced life. He faced moral issues. He was under the same obligation to uphold God's law, just like we were. God the Son became man to subject himself to his own law, the law he wrote. He subjected himself to all of its demands and to live the life that you and I fail to live so that he could fulfill all of its righteous requirements in order to become our perfect substitute. He lived a life 
of perfect righteousness to achieve God's redemptive purchases to adopt us for all who would believe in him. Now look what Hebrews chapter 2 and 4 say. Verse 14, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he, he's speaking about Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, flesh and blood, that through death he might destroy the one who has power over death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he, Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation, which means atonement, to ease God's wrath for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help us when we are tempted. Now, he goes on in chapter 4, verse 14, to say this. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. You hear this language? Jesus, the Son of God, he passed through the heavens, became flesh. Jesus, the Son of God, because we have Jesus, let's hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect was tempted as we are, here it is, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Just like every one of us, Jesus shared in flesh and blood. The writer of Hebrews says he partook of the same things. He became human so that he could be, uh, so that he could be our perfect substitute to experience death in our place. He said he doesn't help the angels because he himself is not an angel, right? Who does he help? The, the offspring of Abraham, which is just another way to say humans. Jesus was human so that he could help humans. That's why he was made like his brothers. And he's able to stand in our place for our sin because Jesus is human just like us. Except because he's never sinned, he is fully alive in a way that none of us are fully alive. He's not guilty because of sin. He's not polluted because of sin. He's not an enemy because of sin. He is the perfect, spotless lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's why Jesus came. He came to bring resolution to our greatest needs. We were estranged and Jesus brought us near. We were enemies and he has made us family. We were contaminated and he has made us clean. We were guilty and he has procured our pardon. In Christ, we are forgiven, accepted, loved, and blessed beyond anything we desire or even deserve. That's who Jesus is and that's why he came. Now let's close out by looking at how this redefines and shapes our priorities. When we say the words in the creed, I believe in Jesus Christ, we are making a bold statement about what our priorities should be. To help us, Jesus defined life's two highest priorities. He made it real simple. Not simple to live out, but simple to understand. He said basically this, love God and love others. He said it like this in Mark chapter 12. Jesus answered, they asked him, what's the most important thing? He answers, he says, the most important is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 
And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this. Jesus gives them a bonus one. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Love God, love others. When you believe in Jesus Christ, it not only defines, but it should reorder what your priorities are. So let's look at the first one, loving God. If you believe that Jesus is the God-man who came and lived for you and died for you, who made it possible to remove your guilt, to cover your shame, obliterate your fear, and give you a blessed hope, then who or what could possibly take a higher priority in your life? Is there anyone or anything giving you a better deal than that? Right? If the answer is no, then he deserves highest role and priority. Who or what could be more deserving of your love? I love the way the Heidelberg Catechism, which is a catechism from the 1500s, you don't have to know that, but it says it really, really beautifully. He gets to the heart, they get to the heart of, the, of, 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 uh, of this question. The way catechisms work is it's questions and answers, right? The question one says this, what is your only comfort in life and death? Here's the answer that I am not my own, but belong, body and soul, in life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He's saying, no matter what comes, what is your comfort in life? What, what makes it all worth it? What enables you to endure? He says, it should be, your heart it should be centered on this, that I am not my own, that I belong, both body and soul, all of me, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. When you can answer that question like that and really mean it, then Jesus has become your highest priority, your greatest treasure, your only comfort, and your highest love. And it will start to define and shape every decision that you make. Hebrews 12, one through two says it like this. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. When you're running an endurance race and finishing is your highest priority, you don't get extra weights, Right? You don't, you don't wear things to slow you down. It's the opposite of what you need to do, right? You've never seen marathon runners put on like extra weights, like pack them around their stomach and big coat. Have you ever seen that? No. Marathon Monday is coming up. I dare you to find someone doing that. No. They wear almost nothing. Like it's the thinnest material in the world so that nothing is weighing them down. You don't want to exert any extra energy except running the race and finishing well. And you have one singular goal in mind. Set your focus, right, on, on finishing. That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. When you consider all that Jesus has done, he founded our faith, perfected our faith, endured the pain and shame of the cross in order that we would have a faith, it should motivate us to lay aside anything that would keep us to getting to Jesus. He is the goal. He is the gospel. He is the treasure. Friends, Jesus is the point. 
That's what he's saying. And when Jesus is your highest priority, everything else in your life becomes negotiable. Here's what that means. When Jesus is your highest priority, he's got that spot reserved. Everything else is negotiable, meaning nothing else can take that number one position. Anything that hinders you from running the race with endurance is set aside. So career, not more important. Any relationship, not more important. Not wealth, not success, not comfort. Nothing else is more important. If it hinders you from loving Christ, then it has to get deprioritized or thrown out completely. I'm not saying quit your job. I'm saying it can't be the most important thing. You've got to de-escalate it. Bring it down a notch. When you take anything else and make it higher, a higher priority, you know what you're doing is you're putting undue strain on that thing. So much of our fear and anxiety, our worry and strain comes from taking good things and elevating them to a higher priority than they were designed for. When you love God with your whole being and he's your highest priority, you actually become stable, steady, and sure. So this week, I encourage you, take some personal time, like put it on your calendar to do some inventory. Who or what are you tempted, prone to struggle, to put in that number one spot besides God? What is it for you? See, if we can identify where we're prone to struggle, we can begin to repent. We can begin to reprioritize. Now, friends, let me tell you something. I've been following Christ for 20 years now. This is not a one and done kind of thing. This is a daily thing. It's not something you do once and you're done. We have to remain diligent and be aware that this is going to be an ongoing reality because there's always going to be competing loves. That's loving God. Now, what does it mean to love others? Does loving others sometimes or often, and you don't have to raise your hand, feel like a burden, right? Did you connect with that quote I read from Jen Pollock Michelle? 1 John 3.16 says this, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. John tells us that love is defined by the greatest act of love the world has ever known, that Jesus laid down his life And when we've been loved like that, John is saying, how can you withhold your love from others? If you've received that kind of love, how could you ever withhold it from others? And notice John isn't talking about love in theory or love in abstract, right? Did Jesus love us in theory? Did he love us in the abstract? No, he loved us bodily, physically. He took on Flesh. He left every comfort and glory of heaven to take on flesh so that he could love us tangibly, intimately, and vulnerably. And that's the example that he gives to us. So let me just be so clear, okay? Love will cost you in actual dollars, in actual time. It will be annoying sometimes. It'll be, you'll, like sometimes you'll sweat when you do it. Sometimes you won't want to do it. But that's real love. It will burden you. There's no way to get around that. That's the point. 
Love will sometimes feel like you are giving up your very life. This uh, past week, our family got the stomach bug. Everyone got it but me. And I don't know if that was a blessing or a curse. Because who cleaned up after everybody? Me. Who got everybody their ice chips and water? Me. Who was doing laundry all night long just to keep up with it? Me. It felt like my very life was being taken from me at every moment. But that's what love is. Following Christ means we are called to love like he loved. He bothered to be bothered. He bore our burdens and John challenges us to do the same for others. Family, we are not entitled to a life of ease. Comfort is not your highest priority. Love is. Love should be our highest priority. And the more we see just how much it costs Jesus to love us, the more we will be changed by that love and the more we will be compelled to love others with the same self-sacrificing kind of love. Seven Mile, let's be a people who believe in Jesus Christ, the God-man who lived for us and died for us to show us how to love the world around us. Let's pray.